Please join me in our responsive welcome. No matter who you are or where you are in life's journey, you are welcome here. No matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. No matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. And you are wanted and you are valued here. Stories of faith that connect us. We have stories of faith that connect us, whether you're in Connecticut or Colorado, the United States or Europe or anywhere in the world. Thank you, Linda, and thank you, everybody, for coming forward. You'll hear more about the special offering for Soft Voices a little bit later. One of the things I love doing is asking people for words of wisdom. You've probably heard me talk about asking people who have been married and are celebrating anniversaries, uh, you know, what's sort of what's the trick? How do you do it? What's give me some words of wisdom. It also applies oh, someone's they're ready with some answers. Um, 99% of my questions are rhetorical. Not, not that I'm going to answer them, but that I want you to think about them. Uh, and it was recently that uh, Marilyn Decker was here one evening with a prayer shawl group. And I just happened to walk in when they were blessing the prayer shawls that have all been completed. It was a wonderful moment. And Marilyn shared that it was their anniversary, her and Bill's anniversary. And it was like at least 46 or maybe 56 years a lot, a lot of years. 54, maybe? Okay. And so I said, okay, well, give me some words of wisdom for marital longevity. She thought about it. And she said, compromise. Compromise is helpful. And she kept thinking about it, and I like that about her, that she kept thinking about it. And she said, you know, and kindness. Like, you know, when you have a choice, choose to be kind. Now, these kinds of words of wisdom, they can count in a marriage or in a school. Like, what are some of the words of wisdom for the schools that really just do a great job of educating students and an environment where teachers thrive and, and students are encouraged? What are, what are some of the words of wisdom from the administration standpoint, and even from a teacher standpoint in a classroom. Same would apply to a church community. Words of wisdom for our life together. I recently heard about a choir that had, um, I forget what it's called, but like they had this list of an agreement of how they were going to be choir together. And I don't know if you've ever been a part of a choir. It's like any other group. It really is. But every once in a while, as this person was telling it to me, sometimes you forget that you're in a choir because you love to sing. And you think that you're in a choir because it's your job to correct other people. <laughs> sounds like I said, sounds like any other, any other group, right? You forget why you're part of this group, and then all of a sudden you think it's your job to tell everybody what they're doing wrong. So... This, this conductor that I was learning about has this wonderful way of saying, oh, I've noticed that we've, um, we're not living up to number four. 
So everybody take out your sheet and let's look at number four. So there's no blame, no shame, no pointing people out. Just a reminder, just calling you back to what really matters here. So as you think about um, your life and the relationships that are important to you and the groups that you're a part of, uh, we have a wonderful little workspace in your bulletin this morning. It's um, numbered 1 through 10. Maybe you have some words of wisdom for what makes those relationships or that relationship work. We're interested in success stories. And another way to get into what makes something work is what's the hardest part? So that's another way in if you're wondering, like, how am I going to get there? And you can start to fill that out now or you can take it home and make it uh, a prayer practice for the week. And we're talking about this because our summer sermon series is on the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments are definitely a way to hold a community together. And you're going to hear a whole lot more about the Ten Commandments as we go on, so I won't say too, too much. But I do want to remind you that the Ten Commandments are shared by uh, the people of the Jewish religion, the Christian religion, and the Islamic religion. So it's not something that is uniquely Christian or uniquely Jewish. It's something that we share. So it's interesting that there are three world religions that... Um, hold these commandments in high esteem as part of sacred scripture. And the literal translation for Ten Commandments is the ten words, or what I like, the ten things. What are the ten things? You know, it's a thing about a thing. And tradition tells us that these words or these things were given to Moses. And it's worth remembering a little bit about Moses' story. His mother was in a very challenging situation when Moses was born. The children were being slaughtered. And so she had the kind of creativity that was born of desperation. That in these days would put a child on a boat, but in those days put a child in a basket. And then he was found by a princess and adopted into another culture. Keep that in mind as you think about the one to whom the words were given. And these words were told were given on a mountain, which in the Bible always means closer to God. But also in the desert. It was in the wilderness that these words were given, not within the boundaries of any one nation. So these are more universal, not for just one people of one time. So what do you imagine when, when you think about, even if this is the first time you're ever thinking about how Moses received those ten things, do you imagine a voice from the sky or do you imagine him receiving it in that silent, intuitive way? In other words, do you think of it as an external sense of guidance? You know, that old teaching philosophy where you must fill the student with information. Or that internal sense of guidance where you 
encourage and invite to see what is within or some combination of the two. I am grateful to my friend Rabbi Stacy Offner uh, because she introduced me to a book by Leonard Felder, who's a psychologist, who wrote about the Ten Commandments, and it's, his book is called The Ten Challenges. And she said, when she heard that we were doing a summer uh, sermon series on the Ten Commandments, she said, ooh, ooh, you have to get this book. You will never look at the Ten Commandments again the same. Never. I'm like, okay. So I got the book. Turns out she was right. Uh, and... I'll be interested to hear what your thoughts as this sermon series gets forward, moves forward. I mean, it's important to remember uh, Leonard Felder, he is a Jewish. Um, His religion is Judaism. And it's important to remember that as a Jewish child and man, Jesus was also well acquainted with the Ten Commandments. Uh, In Matthew chapter 5, he says, I didn't come to abolish the prophets or the law, meaning the ten things. I came to fulfill them. So these ten things really mattered to Jesus as well. And what we're going to hear this morning is two translations of only the first commandment, just the first one. You're going to hear the tradition from our pew Bibles, and then you're going to hear uh, Leonard Felder's translation, which is a beautiful piece of the Hebrew language, um, because words in Hebrew can mean many things. And so I'm going to ask Miriam and David to please come forward. And let's hear what these two translations sound like. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. I am the one who is and always will be. Your God who can bring you out of a narrow way of seeing things, out of your enslavements and worries. Okay. The first one's probably familiar, is that right? Yeah. You know, we've been conditioned to hear these words as commands to be obeyed. You must do this. I always think of a finger pointing, you must do this. Or the lightning bolt from the sky, right? But the gift of Dr. Felder's work is the invitation to hear them as challenges, as an ongoing process as the evolution of us, as we grow into what it means to be mature and healthy adults that have something to offer the world. Let's do that again. And David, this time when you do it, just get a little closer to the microphone, please. Okay, let's hear it one more time. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. I am the one who is and always will be. Your God who can bring you out of a narrow way of seeing things, out of your enslavements and worries. Thank you. Thank you. So the invitation of this first challenge is to rethink our earliest images or teachings about God, or maybe even about these commandments. When you think of an image of God, do you think of the old man in the sky on a throne? I mean, it's valid. You've heard it. 
You've probably seen it. It's a pretty prevalent image. Or maybe, maybe Jesus comes to mind. Jesus as a face of God. Not the face of God, but a face of God. One of many faces of God. That might be helpful. Or maybe your image of God, or when you consider what God is, maybe it's more abstract, the energy that dwells among us. Or a little more concrete, but not personified, the breath. How has your sense or understanding of God changed over time? Has it changed over time? I've put up on the ministry and more table a list for summer reading or viewing. Some movies, some TED Talks, some books that have been a part of my rethinking, reconsidering the image of God that I learned as a child. And I invite you to add to that list. Because this is an inward journey. And it's one that is not true for all time and eternity. It's one that can grow and evolve. You know, as wisdom often does. Sometimes it gets clearer, but sometimes the clarity doesn't mean that it gets condensed into just one word. It might. But there might be opportunities for different facets of that one reality that is beyond knowing and naming. But even that which is beyond knowing and naming, perhaps there's just one image right now that's speaking to you at this part, in this part of your journey. Amelia asked me to give her credit for this line in a joking moment, but um, she says, how we live says something about the God we believe in, which is very true. And what she was talking about in that regard was our life as a church. As a congregational church, our life together is more of a partnership versus a hierarchical relationship. I always giggle, sometimes out loud and sometimes to myself, when someone says, who's in charge? (laughs) See, you giggle too. But how does that apply to God for you? Is it a partnership? Or is it hierarchical? You can usually tell at moments of great stress. Get down here and fix this. That sounds a little hierarchical to me. Is it a relationship that's based on fear or friendship? There's a personal element to this as well, not just our congregational life together, but what does your life say about God or what story does your life tell about God? Is God a silent character in your story? We used to call that being closeted. It doesn't just apply to sexual orientation. Does your life make it easy for others to know a living and loving God? Or have you kept God a secret 
Is your God a God that you and others would want to be in partnership with? Lots of questions today. I know you probably thought our sermon series on questions was over, but now it's my turn to ask some questions. So now you wrestle with these. One of the words that um, Dr. Felder really opened up for us is the, tr- is the word that's Mitzrayim, which is typically translated as Egypt. And what he says is that that word can mean Egypt, the physical location of Egypt, but it can also mean a narrow, restrictive, and limiting place. I am the one who is and always will be your God, who can bring you out of a narrow way of seeing things, out of your enslavements and worries. That sounds beautiful, doesn't it? And each of us has a different experience of God and a different way of expressing their sense of God's presence. Listen to how Rumi, a 13th century poet and Islamic scholar, says it. You dance inside my chest where no one sees you, but sometimes I do, and that sight becomes this art. Or St. Catherine of Siena, a 14th century Catholic mystic. She said, strange that so much suffering is caused because of the misunderstanding of God's true nature. In a book called Love Poems from God, she wrote this. I won't take no for an answer, God began to say to me, when he opened his arms each night wanting us to dance. Has God ever invited you to dance? If we can call it happy hour, we can probably move our body. In Dr. Felder's words, because the first commandment offers the challenge of determining if you want to be partners with the mysterious divine being who can be found deep inside you, because of that, there's a moment of silence in which the world waits your response. Do you want to be in this partnership? Choose carefully, he says. The spark of divine light you carry inside needs to be shared in order for the world to improve. We're going to move into a time of silence so that you can consider any one of the questions that have been offered this morning, or you can tend to your list of ten things or a few words of wisdom. We're going to sing to get us into that space, and then we're going to just sit in silence for a moment. So let's stand. Let's, oh, no, let's remain seated, actually. Number 91 in the Sing book, O Great Spirit. Robert, play it through for us once, just so we can get a gist of it. 
Spirit, earth, sun, sky, and sea. wherever you go, God is with you. Wherever you go, God is there. You are in God's care. And you can be God's care in the world. So go forth with love and joy to be God's care in the world. Amen.